This is Duke University. Let me just say a few words as to why it is that we are honoring Bill Drayton here today. As the founder of Ashoka, for over 26 year, years, he's been identifying social entrepreneurs from around the world. Innovative and entrepreneurial men and women with system-changing solutions for the world's most pressing problems. Since 1981, Ashoka has elected over 1,800 leading social entrepreneurs as Ashoka Fellows, providing them with stipends, professional support, and access to a global network of peers in more than 60 countries. These social entrepreneurs are fueling the growth of the global citizen sectors and proving to all citizens that they too have the potential to be powerful change makers and make a positive difference in their communities. Beyond identifying, supporting, and uniting social entrepreneurs, Bill and Ashoka are leading the way in building the infrastructure for the field of social entrepreneurship. They've de developed a global academy for social entrepreneurship and are spearheading a university network of academics and universities collaborating from around the world. They've launched a citizen-based initiative awards in six different countries to spark and support a growing number of new and tested strategies in local resource mobilization. They're exploring opportunities for a new social financial services industry and pushing the boundaries of business and developing new hybrid value change, global partnerships between social entrepreneurs and businesses to reach new markets. They're partnering with McKinsey, with a major PR firm, and with a network of attorneys to de develop a global accelerator for social entrepreneurs. Like the social entrepreneur at their helm, Ashoka is constantly pushing the envelope, piloting, piloting innovative ways to transform the citizen sector and capitalize on the power and potential of social entrepreneurs. In this emerging field, Ashoka is social entrepreneurship, and social entrepreneurship is Ashoka. We are incredibly honored and pleased today to recognize its founder and CEO, Bill Drayton, the consummate social entrepreneur. The individual whose vision, passion, and relentless, relentless pursuit of systems changing ideas and individuals with the power to change the world is an inspiration and a call to action for us all. Just moments ago, Diana Wells, the president of Ashoka, who is also on our advisory board at Case, and mentioned uh, an interesting tidbit to me, that just last week, uh, recently at the Global Philanthropy Forum, Bill Clinton said that he hoped to live to see the day when Bill Drayton was recognized with a Nobel Prize. We too hope that once again, like honoring Muhammad Yunus several years ago, before he was the Nobel Prize winners, we have once again <laughs> upped the Nobel Prize committee and that we have here a future Nobel laureate. But please join me on behalf of Case, Fuqua, and our sponsor, Square One Bank, in congratulating the 2007 Leadership and Social Entrepreneurship Award winner, Bill Drayton from Ashoka. Good job. We have photo opportunities now, so you just have to be patient. <laughs> all right. Great. I think we're in business. Terrific. Well, uh, welcome to all of you. Uh, I'm Greg Dees. I'm the faculty director of CASE. And it's a tremendous honor and uh, just a wonderful opportunity to have a chance to talk to Bill uh, here today. We cross paths often at conferences on social entrepreneurship. 
Um, we've been on panels together, uh, two of them in the last uh, month or so. Rarely do we get a chance to sit down and talk. Um, so I, I thought I would selfishly take advantage of Bill's visit today to, to do this. What Bill may not know is that I've been a fan of his for over 25 years now. Um, and, and it happened, I, I learned about Bill first in 1981 when I joined McKinsey and Company. I came out of the Yale School of Management, and uh, back then Yale gave a master's in public and private management. So it's it blended government, business, and nonprofit in one program. And if you got that degree, you were already tagged as being interested in social issues. It was, it was uh, and I, I took that uh, proudly as a, um, a badge of that interest. So uh, folks at McKinsey, where Bill had left an incredible reputation, um, were saying, you've got to get to know this guy, Bill Drayton. Fascinating, fascinating guy, great consultant at McKinsey, went off to the EPA, revolutionized the way the EPA uh, engages in environmental protection with this bubble concept and a variety of new ideas. And now he's off doing something new. You know, they may or may not have remembered the name of it, Ashoka, not, but, but basically they said, you've got to get to know Bill Drayton. Well, typically, like everybody else, I'm flat out busy. I don't do anything about it other than admire Bill from a distance. Um, I left McKinsey in 85 to join the faculty at Yale um, and continued to hear about Bill because, as it turns out, Bill has a Yale law degree uh, as well. And so a number of people at Yale knew about Ashoka and were following Ashoka. So again, I started collecting the literature, following what Ashoka was doing. And when I first had the opportunity to teach a course on entrepreneurship, on new ventures, um, I was inspired by many of the examples that uh, were coming out of Ashoka and by what Bill was, Bill was doing. And when I left Yale to go to Harvard, I think it was the existence of Ashoka and someone at the head of it like Bill, widely respected in the business world, in government, and in the nonprofit sector or the social citizen sector, I should say. Bill will correct us on that, make sure we, we say citizen sector. Um, uh, on the, the, somebody who's respected across all those sectors was leading this effort. Um, and I remember meeting with Bill. I think probably our first in-person meeting was at Harvard Business School. It was with a colleague, Bill Salman, who teaches entrepreneurial finance there. Um, and uh, it, was, uh, it was wonderful to finally meet, meet you in person. And uh, since then, my admiration has just continued to grow. So I'd love to talk now a little bit about Ashoka and about you. Uh, and, and first question is, 1980, you, around that time, you started Ashoka. And I'm curious about why you did it. You had been at McKinsey, clearly could have written your own ticket if you wanted to go back there. You went off to the EPA, did great work. You could have joined some government think tank, some, some group in, on K Street or somewhere in DC. You could have done any number of things. You decided to start a new organization, Ashoka. Why? Well, I think one could just flip the question back a little bit. You know, why did you decide to entrepreneur this field at roughly the same time? <laughs> Inspired by you. <laughs> so I, I, I think the, there's, a, there's an intent in this question about why should one think about this field. In, in my case, it's, it's very simple, and I think it probably this applies to everyone here. Um, everyone here can make a list of things that need to be fixed. Um, 
the environment, income distribution in the world, the lack of a regulatory system for finance internationally, whatever. And so you ask, what's the most powerful resource you can bring to bear? And I think it's pretty simple. It's, it's always a big pattern change idea, but only if it's in the hands of a really good entrepreneur. And that's just as true in business or social. But we had been through three centuries where business had already shifted to an entrepreneurial competitive framework. And it took off and drove history for the last three centuries. It's a very radical proposition when you, in a world that has been ruled by elites for 12,000 years since the agricultural revolution produced a small surplus and therefore a small elite, to say anyone who has a better idea, if you implement it, we're gonna value you and make you respected and you'll gain resources and your family will be happy, we'll make you rich. That is a completely radical break with the structure of society. And it, it led to the compounding of growth in business. But the social half, it didn't happen. We just fell way behind, and hence the squalor of the social sector um, compared to business. It, we, we, it's hard to even remember how bad this was 25 years ago around 1980. And uh, what we felt was that around 1980, it was as if a huge ice dam had broken and, and the social half of the world was going to shift structurally. Not just a few outliers like Florence Nightingale or Maria Montessori, but we were gonna see the whole system shift. And that was around 1980 and, and it, it has been incredibly dramatic. It's exactly what we foresaw. The Ashoka idea actually dates back to the 60s uh, when I was an undergraduate. Um, but around 1980, you could just see that this his, historical hinge was about to turn. And um, it has. In the last two and a half decades, we have seen all across the world, on every continent except for the government, as in Burma, have blocked it, the structure of the social half of the world become as entrepreneurial and competitive as business. And we've been catching up in productivity as a result very fast. Our best estimate is we're cutting the productivity gap in half every 10 to 12 years. Well, this is a historical change that is so profound and moving so quickly that to have the opportunity to serve that change, what could possibly be more interesting or valuable? And, you know, Diana and I are just privileged to be at the center of several thousand of the world's best social entrepreneurs in every field, in every continent, and that allows us to see the patterns and build. And so, you know, if you think about it, you started discussing institutions on K Street, and you know, this is really boring. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this has been exciting for you to do, but uh, why do you think we hit that turning point around 1980? I'm just, I don't know if you have any thoughts or speculations about that. We had the delay, business took off, and you could see science and technology in part driving that. <clears throat> Development of new sort of division of labor organizations, ideas of Adam Smith. 
and others. Why the delay in the social sector, and what triggered, do you think, the takeoff? Uh, well, I think the delay is, is very easy to understand. That It was so easy to tax the new wealth that business was creating. People don't mind giving up something they never had. And so we paid for the canals, the roads, the school systems, the welfare <coughs> systems through taxes. And so there wasn't the pressure. Uh, and the second thing is that the money flowed through a monopoly structure, government. It doesn't matter what sector you're in, no monopoly can ever withstand competition. They don't want it for that reason. They really don't want it. Now, if you have no positive incentive and the paymaster says don't do that, um, that's why we fell behind uh, in quick summary. Um, and why did it break loose? Uh, there's some simple numbers that my wonderful friend Will Baumol, who is one of the few policy political economists left in the world. Um, he wrote his 20th book, believe it or not, uh, uh, about two or three years ago, and said, basically, why did the West take off? And he had a very interesting statistic. From Rome to 1700, there was no growth in per capita income. And then 1700s, 20%, 1800s, 200%. The last century, 740%. Um, and what caused that was this revolution of inviting anyone to be a change maker in business and people's response. And then business schools and other institutions came up to support that and help develop. None of that happened in the social arena. Now, if you take 20 plus 200 and 740, and there's compounding as well, the gap in the productivity within every society between business and the social half was so great, it was really intolerable. And also the, the number of, uh, and it was obvious, you know, you have siblings in the same family working in the two sectors, and you know, why, why is this so different? And um, uh, the, the problems were getting intolerable. You know, the, if you have, Society changing and a part of it not adapting, well, that part becomes more and more dysfunctional. It's not just staying static. There are some other things that were going on at that time. In Asia, which is two-thirds of the world, lest we forget, um, the post-independence generation was coming of professional age. And their parents thought that getting rid of the British or the French or the Dutch or whatever was the, the game, and then you would do what they did. I, you would take over the government and the secret police and so on, which they did. And of course, they built the huge socialist bureaucracies, which uh, caused India to have a 2% growth rate for 50 years, to take one example. Well, the uh, next generation was different. They didn't have that experience. They didn't have that dream. They lived under the clumping feet and the corruption and the disappointment of what that excess had caused. Um, when we got started, one of our first fellows in Bombay was working in education. And one of her motivations was that 70% of the children in Bombay, of all places, wanted to emigrate as their ambition. Now, this is a depressed country. This is a real failure. And some of these folks in our generation, well-educated, listening to the same news, they said we could do better. And so you, 
you get a generation, the generals are leaving in Latin America, nine years later the wall fell and in, in, in the Soviet empire collapsed in Europe. So you have a whole generation that was ready. And um, the challenge initially was how to help them get started. Help, and uh, you know, so that's, uh, the, the, I think those are the main reasons for that timing. But it's, it's very dramatic that just in 25 years, you've had a half of society go through this, this complete profound revolution in its fundamental architecture. And, and that's why this is such a huge opportunity for everyone in this room in terms of careers, in terms of thinking about if you're going to go into business, the strategic environment has changed. If you're going to go into government, people don't see that yet. And it's really important for you to see that. And, and really take advantage of it. I think you've laid the foundation for answering my next question, which was really, why Ashoka? Why an organization to support social entrepreneurs? What was the need or the opportunity that you saw? Obviously, there was this turning point in history. But why did you need an extra organization to step into this? Well, uh, just imagine, I mean, first of all, some of what I'm saying, even here, even at Fuqua, is unfamiliar. Think back 25 years ago, there was no phrase social entrepreneur. We made it up. And when people looked, when we said it, they would look at us blank-eyed, or some smart people would say it's an oxymoron. Mm -hmm. um, well, you know, I can't tell you how many people that we talked to around the world would say, oh, I now know what I am. This is actually pretty important. My godmother could never tell her friends what I did. She said, my godson, Bill, you know, he's sort of a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> well, imagine you're in Indonesia. Well, you know, you've got a culture that isn't very sympathetic on Java anyway, and you've got a government that's definitely not sympathetic. And you don't know what you are, and you sort of hide from yourself what you are, let alone everyone else. And then how are you supposed to find other people like you? And how do you, who do you talk to about the methodologies? Um, who do you share with? Who do you collaborate with? Uh, who will really help you and understand you? And so that, we create that community. That's the most important thing we do because the best social entrepreneurs in the world are the best people to help one another. And we provide that framework. So in Indonesia now there are over 100 um, social entrepreneurs. All of them meet our test of this person and this idea will, we believe and they believe, change the pattern on a continental scale. So it's not a local change maker. And for this conversation, it's very useful to think of entrepreneur as someone who is the Florence Nightingale, uh, Bill Gates of the world, and not the tobacconist or the local, someone setting up a local school. You need both, so you, but, and we're never going to prevent the tobacconist saying that they're an entrepreneur because they want to use that word. So the, it'll always be confused linguistically. But for our purposes, if you think entrepreneur major pattern change and change makers, all the other levels that are really needed. So. Um, Interesting you mentioned tobacconist. It was a tobacco farmer, I think, who founded Duke University, so created a school. And, 
but probably more than just the tobacconist. Just, I just wanted to finish one other yeah. thing on this question. So that, that's the first level. How do you help people get started? How do you help them over their whole life history? How do you weave them together so we're a community of much more than the sum of the parts? That's the first level of Ashoka, which most people sort of understand at this point. The second level uh, is uh, how do we get the institutions right for this field? How do we, uh, and the most important is when you, how do we think and act together? So it's the level of entrepreneurship beyond solo practitionership. So just to take an example that I think we'll probably come back to, we have about 400 fellows <laughs> working on full economic citizenship. How can everyone be a full actor in the economy? Well, each of those people uh, has a big impact. We, we, Diana invented this a measuring effectiveness system, and at the end of five years, we evaluate uh, how people have done. And we find that 90% plus or minus a few percent have had independent institutions copy their idea. And then roughly, somewhere between 49 and 60%, it varies more, have already changed national policy, which is more impressive in its hands because not everyone needs to change national policy. So if you have 400 people, of that scale of impact, although each of them has seen one principle, one delivery system, one or two sets of clients, when you have 400, you can see the whole picture. You would not be able to do this in any one country. You have to do it at a global level. Um, once you see that, you're in a position to entrepreneur together, to say, okay, we see this picture now for each field, who are the key decision makers? And to use McKinsey language, we then define them as the client. And for those people, looking at the pattern change principles, what are the principles for those people are major new strategic avenues? And how do we then get them to see that? How do we get, this is the entrepreneur's classic job. Once you've gotten to that point, you know it will work because it's a big win for all the key actors. But you still have to get from system A to system B, which is a trick. And so how do you get from here to there is the entrepreneur's central task. How do you find the jujitsu point that a small force, which the entrepreneur always is, will set in motion much bigger forces that will pull society from the old system to the new system? In doing that, we have a huge competitive advantage. We have 400 people who are very professional at causing major structural change in this field. This is their ideas. They have ownership. And along with other tools, that gives us the opportunity for every major field. I'm just giving the example of full economic citizenship whether it's law for all or young people or the environment, for every major field to identify the most important ideas that are a big win for the key actors and then figure out how to flip the system. Now that is something that no individual entrepreneur could do. No national grouping of entrepreneurs could do. It's only when we work together. Once we have done this three or four times, then what, uh, this is, I believe, the central process for our field. It's how do we entrepreneur together? Entrepreneurs like to entrepreneur. They don't like to write books. They don't like to do other things. But we love doing this. 
And once we've demonstrated how to do this three or four times, the field will know how to do it. We will have built institutions. Uh, and so that's, uh, that's an example of the second dimension of Ashoka. And it's a, I think it's a very essential. Uh, it's essentially how do you get the institutions right uh, so that we are much, much more than the sum of the individual parts. Yeah, I'd like to get you to talk a little more about that because when people think about widespread change, right, about changing the world, that's like David's, David's book title here, you think that it's got to be easier, right, if you're working with the big organizations. Let's work with governmental agencies or large corporations or create some massive social movement. Why do you see social entrepreneurs as the jujitsu point or... And how do, they, how do we get from a, an innovative idea working in Bombay to something that's actually changing the system? How does that happen? Well, at, at two levels, uh, and this is very key. One is the, the work of the individual entrepreneur. And then second, it's us together, this whole profound change in the architecture of society. And each individual entrepreneur contributes to that. And each of our impacts is the sum of the individual change and our contribution to shifting to an everyone a change maker world, where the social entrepreneurs right now are the most critical cutting edge of that bigger change. Business entrepreneurs are still very important actors. Um, now, so let me take the first part, and I'm just going to use an example from the book since some of you will have read it, and hopefully all of you soon will read it. Um, the uh, uh, child line, Drew Billamoria. Uh, and I just think having a concrete example will make this conversation come alive a bit better. Uh, she saw a need. Growing number of street children as the process of urbanization it was beginning to take off in Asia. You know, the only reason that we don't have an overwhelming urban majority in the world is that Asia still has a predominance of people living in the villages. That's not true anywhere else. But the process of urbanization is beginning. The, the large joint family, the land tenure systems that underlay it are, are falling apart. One of the consequences is that there is a very sharp increase in the number of street children. Now, there have always been street children, Viz, Rudyard Kipling's Kim, but the number is increasing dramatically. So this social entrepreneur, the first thing entrepreneurs do is they see a problem that other people don't see. This is really important as, as you think about yourselves. If you are not in your heart a change maker, you'll never see a problem. Why would you want to see a problem? It's just going to make you feel badly about yourself because you're not going to be able to do anything about it. But once you know that you're a change maker, looking for problems is your route to an opportunity. Well, so Jeru saw this problem. And it's not if it wasn't there and the millions of people could have seen it. And then she said, okay, now how do we solve this? And she came up with a very simple solution, which is important if you're going to get the system to change. She said, let's create a free telephone hotline, child line, uh, that any child who's got a crisis uh, can call and then they'll be connected with the services. Previously, there was no way the two could find one another. Very simple idea. Now, as an entrepreneur, she also thought it through and said, okay, now, if a street kid calls in and you have a middle-aged, lower-middle-class uh, 
bureaucrat answer the phone, this is not going to work. So who answers the phone? It's street kids. So this is a very good role for street kids. There's a very good connection. They're highly motivated. And so this is the entrepreneur thinking through the whole system. Uh, now, this has taken off. In a couple of years, it went from Bombay to 58 cities in India. Now it's in over 67 countries worldwide and spreading. Uh, think about the implications of this. Uh, not only does it get supply and demand to meet one another in a timely way, imagine you're the police officer on the beat. It used to be that you could do pretty much what you wanted with street kids. Now, if you mistreat someone, a friend or the person you're mistreating halfway down the block can go to any phone and call a free phone and talk to a sympathetic person who and give the name of the police officer and trouble is on the way with your name on it in half an hour. Well, this has a big, this changes how police officers behave. This changes street kids becoming citizens. Uh, think about what it does to supply and demand in a different sense. Suddenly you see there's too much of this type of service and not enough of this. Oh, that begins to have some implications. That opens up opportunities for other people to entrepreneur to provide more of the missing services. It shows that this agency is corrupt and offensive and something should be done about it and these people are terrific. Well now, this one simple change, um, you know, entrepreneurship, Greg's article, I think the second or third part, the second part talking about historical writers, Schumpeter, creative destruction, here it is. Um, this is upsetting the apple cart for almost everybody. The police, the service agencies, um, and at the same time, how can Drew succeed if she doesn't recruit local people in all these different places to stand up and take her model and run with it? So she is a mass recruiter of local change makers, partly because she's a role model, but directly because she isn't going to go to Mysore or Helsinki to start this sort of thing. She's got to get people there to stand up and be local change makers. How does she do that? She gives them a user-friendly, well-worked-out, safe, to the degree necessary, supported model. Uh, now, here you have the two levels of social entrepreneurship at work. Yes, she has changed street kids. She's changed these institutions. But the second level of her contribution is she is disrupting the whole system and she is mass recruiting local change makers. This is a completely essential, necessary element in getting to an everyone a change maker world. Um, and so when you look at her impact, of course that she has a huge impact. That's what great entrepreneurs do. But there's a second level, which is even, I think, more important at this moment in history. The leading social entrepreneurs are the key catalysts for getting to everyone a change maker. And every one of those, lo the local group of people who set up Childline in Mysore, they become local role models. Their friends and neighbors see it. The kids who are involved in it, they see it. They say, oh, well, maybe I could do that. And some of them will eventually become great change makers, and eventually some will become entrepreneurs. The whole system gets easier with every incremental step. 
And as we have more and more social entrepreneurs and we wire them together, the rate of Schumpeterian destruction and creativity at the local level and every local level increases. Giroux's idea has moved out to 67 countries. Well, that means in each of those countries, the rate of upsetting and seeding is accelerating because it's not just the Nigerian or Finnish or whatnot um, uh, social entrepreneurs. It's Giroux who's causing upset. And this is part of the increased productivity of the field as well. So don't underestimate us. <laughs> All right, we won't underestimate you. The, the, You've been doing this for 25 years, and you've obviously worked with a lot of folks like Giroux to understand this process. What are the lessons you'd take away for social entrepreneurs, or would-be social entrepreneurs, probably some out in the audience, what, just distilling that? What would be the top lessons you'd take away? What advice would you give? Well, this, as you can tell, I have an ulterior motive here. I, everyone in this room has so much talent there is so much need. People do not see this opportunity. Um, we are the fastest growing sector in the world. We're growing jobs at two and a half to three times the rate of the rest of the economy on now a big base in the OECD countries. The, the variation depends what base year you use. Uh, and that's because we're increasing productivity much faster than business because it's a catch up. I.e. there's a huge opportunity. Because there's more demand than supply, and there's, 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 you don't have a glass ceiling problem here. If you entrepreneur your own thing, even less. Um, a, perfectly, a perfect fit with your values. Uh, you can have a really, really big impact here because we've got three centuries of mess to clean up. Um, this is, you know, you go to dinner. Are people going to be more interested in you or the investment banker now? It's you. <laughs> um, and you can see our salaries are gaining for the first time in centuries relative to business. But it's still lower, but it's gaining um, relatively because the productivity is gaining faster. You will not be frustrated. There are very effective, in fact, better than business organizations for reasons hopefully we will get to. This is a great career path. Very few people see it. It's not just people at business school, people in mid-career, later in lives. And we need graphic artists as well as we need all. This is a big field. We need people who are managers, all the skills, as well as entrepreneurs. So first of all, just see the opportunity. Now, think if you think about the stories of the entrepreneurs, the solutions are not rocket science. They're very <coughs> practical. Once you allow yourself to see the problem street kids and service agencies can't find one another, you could have thought of a free telephone line. This is really not brilliant. Then you just have to be very persistent in constantly, iteratively, creatively solving problems because the world keeps changing ever faster. So the world you started with is going to be different in a couple of years. Uh, your idea is moving into different phases. So if you just give yourself permission, this is a really fascinating process. Um, and you can solve all those problems. But you've got to see the opportunity. Give yourself permission. You know, if, 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 our, if these 2,000 people can do it, you certainly can.
I, I, it's just, you know, there are a lot of people, all the stuff shirts in the world tell you, no, 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 don't do this, you can't do that. This is too risky, what nonsense. What they're really saying is, I failed to do this and you're making me feel uncomfortable because <laughs> I've spent 40 years in a law firm and I'm not really sure that was so great. So you can't do this. You have to be very polite and don't listen to it. <laughs> All right. And not everybody's going to go the route of being a social entrepreneur. Um, Ashoka provides support and you obviously raise money from investors. Do you have any advice for folks who might want to be on the investor side of this, supporting social entrepreneurs, playing that almost venture philanthropy kind of role? Um, yes. <laughs> um, this is an area that needs entrepreneurship even more than the operating side. It's very normal. You operating side changes, and then the support industries have to change. The uh, citizen sector currently looks to two institutional sources of finance, government grant agencies and foundations, and they're both horrible. Um, and they're not going to change, I don't think. A few individual institutions probably will make the transition, but very few. Um, you do not look to the buggy industry to create the auto industry. It just is very unlikely. Um, in this case, it's even more unlikely because Foundations do not have to listen to anyone. They do not have a developed nervous system. Government does have a nervous system, but it's frequently connected to the wrong people. So think about development as an extreme case. Um, the contractors have a connection, but not the poor person in Mali. Um, and so these are systems that have not adapted in the last 25 years which is a pretty strong indication they're unlikely to adapt in the next 5, 10, 25 years. So right now, there is a wave of entrepreneurship that is beginning in social <coughs> finance. This is a huge opportunity for people here, and I would think this is an area the business school should really focus on hard. Uh, specifically, uh, we have just launched, and Diana actually is central in this, uh, a social investment venture program, just like the venture program for people in education and human rights, but in this case for social investment entrepreneurs. Um, and I'll just give you uh, quickly one example, a Colombian educational systems typically are government financed, Think universities for a moment. Government builds, provides at nominal cost. I, you're giving away a valuable good for less than market price. So influence becomes very important. You can imagine where that leads. There's no price signal that tells you how many seats you really need. So there's an undersupply typically. Um, and uh, this is, there's, there's not a flow of information about quality relative to you know, value for, for money invested, time invested. So this fellow has put in place a for-profit uh, set of funds. You can invest uh, in 10,000 Peruvian veterinary students or 5,000 Colombian undergraduates. You don't know what the income of any one will be, but you do have a pretty good sense for the group. 
So this is a practical investment fund in human capital. And uh, the deal for the students is you, and I'm simplifying slightly because there's a 32 page contract here. Um, for 15 years you pay either nothing or up to 15% of your income depending on your income. So if you're ill, you don't pay something. If you're working in the citizen sector and are still not being paid very much, you may pay 3%. But if you started a business and are doing very well, you'll pay 15%. So this is com compared to normal loans uh, for students. There's no clanking thing if you happen to fall ill. Um, but it works out, he, his estimate is 20, 30% profitability. So this is a good investment. Now, what will happen is that, of course, those rates of return will be driven down as more people enter. So you, in effect, have created a market clearing mechanism, a better source of finance for students, a new and not limited by government budgets uh, source of funding to expand education. And you have an information flow that um, they tell students, you know, don't take the $4,000 because this isn't very good. You aren't going to, and we won't get as good a return as if you go to a $6,000 school. Well, this is information the existing system doesn't do very well at. Now, this is only one example. The whole financial system serving the organizations of the sector and serving the clients is a catastrophic mess i.e. it's a huge entrepreneurial opportunity and entrepreneurs are beginning to come up. If you are interested in finance, this is where you should be looking. Uh, the plastics, much more interesting than plastics of our generation. <laughs> now, uh, the, the, uh, if you uh, are thinking about going into the for-profit finance industry, who is going to be the replacement key actor for the foundations and government agencies. There's only one really obvious choice. It's the 10% of the population, of the working population working in for-profit finance. This is where you have a competitive, highly intelligent, innovative, highly diverse, ever-changing system. Uh, the key constraint has not been demand. It's been supply. We had a completely fractured, ineffective industry 25 years ago. Now, uh, we're creating, as part of the full economic citizenship, uh, new investment patterns. Um, small farmers didn't get drip irrigation. Now they can get drip irrigation because citizen groups do the retail function and partner with businesses that manufacture the pipes. The, the businesses could not reach small farmers before. You're talking about 100 million, 200 million small farmers. You can double, triple their income because of multiple crops, greater security, by getting them drip irrigation. This is important. You're getting 30 to 50 percent of the sale price, which is say five to seven thousand dollars each. You multiply through by 100 million, 200 million. It's a lot of money that goes to the citizen sector. This is a new source of finance for the citizen sector. From the point of view of Citibank or uh, Coots and Company or whatever, 
you suddenly have paper that they can offer their clients that is helping farmers double or triple their income, and you can get 8%, and it's a good, safe investment. And you're talking about billions and billions of dollars, so it's enough that they can actually use it. Very low transaction costs, low risk. Now, this is, this is a different world we're going into. And the reason I wanted to go into that example was to give you a very concrete example that if you are going into business, Forget going into social entrepreneurship. You cannot do a good job five years from now if you are not taking into account this completely profound change in the strategic environment facing business. You have a giant sector growing three times as fast as you that has lower costs, that at the moment is much more creative, um, and it has this huge opportunity because it's such a mess. Well, that means things can move very fast. And you know, if you're smart, you're going to say, how do I work with these people? How do I? And if you're not smart, you're going to be blindsided because one of your competitors is going to be the company that works out this deal with us um, for drip irrigation or slum housing or whatever it is. And that's exactly what's happening right now. Um, and in five years, once this is visible, and again, once people get it, this is the, the strategic environment has changed. And the same thing is true for government, parenthetically. I'm glad you mentioned the finance opportunities. I think a lot of people, probably not those in this room, tend to think of this sector as largely the recipient of handouts. Nothing very sophisticated. You just get a grant or a gift, and you go off and do the work. Um, and we need, in this sector, the same kind of sophisticated uh, financial expertise as business needs. I and mean, we've got, in our audience actually today, some folks who provide that from self-help, including Martin Eeks, who's a co-founder there, and Mary Mountcastle and others who've led that organization, on the cutting edge of financial thinking, but applying it to this <laughs> sector. And I think people miss that. They think this sector is simply about the heart, not about good analytic, hardcore, creative financial thinking. And it, it, it is. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Um, you mentioned the role of business. And a lot of our students are, are, are going to go off and work in a business career. They may or may not leave to become social entrepreneurs. Um, you've talked about everybody being a change maker. How can they be change makers within business? What advice do you have to MBAs that go into a business career, but they still want to be a change maker? What, what should they be doing? Well, I mean, the people who set off as everyone a change maker revolution were the business entrepreneurs around 1700. And, you know, one, uh, you know, I, what Pierre Omijar did with eBay and the folks at Google are doing, this is bringing huge change, huge social change. It's part of the wiring that helps the citizen sector just as much. So uh, entrepreneurs anywhere are very, very critical. And you need people to do the follow-on change-making at the middle and lower levels in all sectors. It's just that the citizen sector is catching up. So it's moving much faster at the moment. And so I. Uh, I think if you think ahead, we're going to see increasingly the two sectors come together. What's, what's happening is that we have left government and we've left universities and a few other sectors back in the pre-modern era that over 25 years, the citizen sector has been moving away from pre-modern very fast to have the same architecture as business. Um, 
as we've been closing this, you know, if you close the, you cut the productivity gap in half every 10 to 12 years, and we've been at it for 26 years, you know, it's getting close. So the potential for social businesses is increasing very rapidly. That's what the hybrid value chain is about. Hybrid business social value added chains where you take the strengths in both and put them together. Uh, that's a phrase that you will, it'll be a central figure in uh, business strategy going forward. Now, in thinking about this, please don't think about business just doing what it's always done. This is going to cause major changes in business. This is a real opportunity for business to get beyond some of the mistakes it's made. Um, and for example, um, the current financial legal structure almost guarantees that a company, once it's done an IPO, uh, will not make the next S-curve leap. Uh, this is a very major problem. Uh, how many of the Fortune 500, you all know the statistics, almost none of the Fortune 500 companies of a few decades ago are still there. Well, the faster the world changes, the moment that you're getting into the accelerator stage of the S-curve, this S-curve, you better have a half dozen other S-curves that you're working on really seriously in your organization because it's too late when, you're, when it begins to flatten out now. Your competitors are already there. I mean, as the rate of change increases, we have to create in every institution, in every one a change maker uh, organization. This is a very different type of organization. Um, and as a business manager, you have to help that your organization make that transition. So we've got to get beyond the financial reports, the focus on numbers only. You don't do S-curves by statistics. This is judgment, it's intuition, it's entrepreneurship, it's things that you can't measure for another 10 years. This is the heart of what business is about. Now, how do you get there? You've got to have the people in your institution be innovating at all levels, at the operational level, because the operations are changing, materials are changing, finance systems are changing, your competitors are changing, the needs of your clients are changing. You need people at all levels who are change-making, but you, you have to have entrepreneurs, real entrepreneurs, intrapreneurs who are working on the, nec the next dozen, half dozen, dozen S-curves. The existing organizational structures don't do that. Google is trying to do that because they understand that that's, they're, they're in a sector that's already shifted in this direction. Uh, Ashoka, we're trying to build an everyone an entrepreneur organization, staff, fellows, and leading business entrepreneurs, that triangle. Well, so we are, we are wrestling with how do you build this type of an organization? As you know from the McKinsey 7S's of In Search of Excellence, you can't just change strategy. You have to have staff absolutely fit that and systems and culture and so on and so forth. So as a business manager, going to a very different world. Now, there's another element that I think is very important that we've been shying away from, moving away from, and that is a huge mistake, and that's ethical fiber. In an everyone a change maker world and organization, you have a team. 
That's what the, it, it's no longer a phalanx, it's a team. Um, and everyone has to take initiative. That means everyone has to be open with everyone else. There has to be a very high level of trust and you can't have trust unless people are trustworthy. And this is like all other human skills. People have to practice it. They have to be in an environment that encourages it. They have to think about it. Well, we have gotten into a stupid situation where our legal department now tells us don't even give people references. And for God's sakes, don't say, any, don't say anything that sounds judgmental. Um, you know, there's some of this, there's good reason for this. You know, we don't, we don't want to mix up discomfort with otherness with discomfort with untrustworthiness. But, you know, this is a management challenge you can solve. There are ways of doing this, and it's really important to do it. There are some institutions, the Hilti Corporation in Liechtenstein does this. They're very good at this. This is an area where the citizen sector must not learn from where business now is. Uh, this is where we all have to work to build everyone changemaker organizations, which means trust, which means very strong ethical fiber. It has to be a central element in management leadership. So I'm, I, I'm just citing two areas to escape the quantitative measures and to stop shying away from ethical fiber, but actually make it a central part of day-to-day -day activity. One of the things Hilti does that I love is when they have a meeting, frequently at the end of the meeting they say, how have we done in this meeting in terms of the Hilti values? And five of the seven values have to do with what we in Ashoka call ethical fiber. Well, not surprisingly, people in that company are better at this, and that's their key competitive advantage in the building industry, which as you know is a notoriously corrupt industry, but people trust Hilti because they are trustworthy. That's a huge competitive advantage they have. The bigger advantage is internal. So, you know, I, as, we, as the business and society worlds come together, um, we've both, we're both gonna end up in a different place. It's not one learning from the other. We're gonna learn together, and I think there's a lot that we in the citizen sector have to bring to that, uh, bringing together. So um, uh, there's a point I made earlier, you've got to understand what's happening with the citizen sector, major change in strategic environment. But as you think about an everyone a change maker world, um, the key factor for success is what proportion of change makers you have in your institution. This is any institution, it's not just business. An ethnic group, a city, you know, why has San Jose taken off and Milwaukee and Buffalo died? Well, because there's a high proportion of change makers over here and the wiring is good for change makers and they didn't think about it over here. The same thing is gonna be true for any company. Whatever company figures out that in, whatever, in any industry that the key factor for success is being in everyone a change maker organization, they'll just walk away from the competition. Um, and so, I, you know, that's, all these pieces fit together and, and I think we, to, you know, we have the opportunity to provide leadership in the most profound transformation of human society since the agricultural revolution. I would have plenty of more questions, but I'm mindful of time. We need to open this up so that you can get some questions from the, folks who've come to hear you this morning. So um, open for questions at this point.
Yes, sir. Could you just expand a little bit? Well, it, I, initially, my my question was, what do you see as the biggest hurdle? Creating ideas, accessing, or selling? And the people who create the ideas are, you know, in the other room and down the street and so on and so forth. But they don't know how to get it to you. Or you don't know how to get it from them. Okay? So that's one element. The other one is someone has a great idea. Well, you have to take that idea and go out there and sell it to the community or to the to whoever the the uh, uh, the customer is. And I'm trying to understand from from your point of view, from from your operations point of view, where you have a bigger problem. I think I can explain why I was having trouble understanding the question to begin with. Uh, there is absolutely no division between any of those functions for the entrepreneur. They have got to, the central thing that defines a really good entrepreneur, a, a pattern change entrepreneur, not, not a local tobacconist or whatnot, is they want to change the world. In fact, they have to change the world. Their vision has to be the new pattern for society for them to be a fulfilled human being. And so they're going to stick with it through all those stages. They've got to, and, and, this, this business of having an idea and then implementing it, or selling, implementing, I think that's a, that's, that's, that comes from, with all due respect, from the scholarly world and from the world of franchises. You know, yeah, if you, you're putting in place the 13th department store in town, it all turns on you know, how efficient you are in implementing a proven model, basically. Different issue. If you're involved in a major pattern change. No one's ever done it before. Um, you've got to figure out um, the whole thing. And you've got to carry it through the whole thing. And it's, it is constant iterative change. Um, every day, the, uh, the entrepreneur has their antennae out there listening for the slightest squeak. This isn't quite working. These people are upset. Oh, this looks like this is getting a reaction that could be promising over here. And they are constantly, constantly changing the idea or changing the environment. But if they don't do that, they will fail. In, and it's not just failing in a job, failing in their life work. And so you just, you can't divide. Uh, this is why I think it's so stupid to think that you can bring in a manager and substitute for the entrepreneur. All that will happen is that the, the momentum will continue for a while, and then the thing dies, because that iterative process of, of, of creation has stopped. Um, you know, the famous story of Apple and the gentleman from Pepsi uh, is a warning about that. Um, and, hmm? I think that's yes, right. Was yes, was um, So I, you know, you, 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 we do very careful life histories. And you see this starts very young. People know they have this. Even they don't articulate it, they put themselves through a long apprenticeship. When they're ready, they really do know what the next step for the idea is. That you don't do that if you haven't really understood the field the technology, the people, the institutions, the history, the whole thing. 
Uh, and if you haven't given yourself this sort of training, and so you've already been at it for 15 years before you even begin to see something, well, that's when Ashoka steps in, but then the entrepreneur's gonna be at it for another decade or two decades, and it, it's a time frame that absolutely does not fit the foundation government grant agency time frame. It's completely not, it doesn't, doesn't even begin to connect. Yes. Um, a lot of social entrepreneurship, at least in the United States, operates within the, the legal structure that's established by corporate law at the state level and the Internal Revenue Code at, at the federal level. What systemic changes would you see that would, uh, should come about within those structures that would facilitate um, the rise of more social entrepreneurship? Well, this is, this is like finance. The law has lagged. Uh, and now, suddenly, we're creating this whole phenomenon of social businesses. Well, the whole legal and tax system is designed to keep them apart. Um, and in fact, the dean at the law school here uh, undertook a, a dinner that I think we both were at two years ago to make this a project at the law school. The Blair government um, in July of last year put in place a first step to a new law in England to make it a bit easier. There's a huge amount more to be done here. Um, all the changes I've been describing in the finance sector earlier is gonna require legal changes. Not all of them, but, but it would be greatly helped if we could, if we could straighten out the legal structures. So, you know, when you, you have a fundamental change in the structure of society, then the law has to adjust to that. You know, it invented the corporation not that long ago. I bet you we will invent some new things here that, for example, will not be so afraid of ethical fiber as a management factor. Rex? Having some knowledge of mature NGOs, which are as bureaucratic as any government why is it not inevitable destiny of social entrepreneurship turning into business? Well, if we were where um, business has been uh, and where we have been, of course that happens. And uh, once and, and there are routine functions, and you, you do need the McDonald's franchises to be more or less the same. Uh, so I'm not suggesting that everyone has to be a pattern change entrepreneur, that every function is always at that stage in its development. However, as we move towards the world of the future where everyone is a change maker, the rate of change is going to accelerate very dramatically. And um, we, the, the, the people who don't change are going to die faster because the competition is going to be much more rigorous. Now, U.S. Steel, despite its various name changes, has been self-liquidating for something like 50 years. Well, it won't take 50 years in the future. And the same thing is true for some of the large social institutions that can remain nameless, but we all know them. And having, having, a, having a, a reformed financial institution that makes performance 
more clear is going to help. I mean, you just take this, this change that I described for educational finance. They're going to be competing funds. And the Lipper service is going to say, you know, fund A has you know, this pattern of performance. And people will say, I want to buy more of that. And fund B, they uh, were corrupt. And they invested in students who weren't so smart. And they do very poorly. Well, that's going to be visible. Right now, it isn't visible. Uh, under the Community Reinvestment Act in Chicago, we, this is a couple of years ago, there was something like 18, 19 um, uh, my, uh, microcredit operations. And some of them are appalling. The statistics, you take one look at them. The bank doesn't care. It meets their requirement, and they just keep going. Well, if we have a different type of uh, competitive financial system, I bet you that would change. When have you ever heard a foundation or a government grant agency announce that their investments don't work? <laughs> yes, go ahead. I was just wondering if you could perhaps elaborate a bit on solutions for We have to get a new financial system, and that's in two parts. You, citizen sector, just as with business, you have garage, you have a stage when you really have to go at it full time, but who are you, and the idea isn't proven, and you haven't built it, so you need institutional finance. Then there's a break-even zone uh, where you need some mix, but after that, you have to have a broad base of Resources coming in roughly equaling the sources going out, or it's not viable. And so that's actually probably 95, 97% of, of what's needed out here. And here the problem, I think, is not other people, it's us. We have to, the citizen sector has to realize that we have to build a broad citizen base of support that we can, and here's how. And uh, Beth referred to the citizen base initiative. That's exactly, in, in our introduction, that's exactly what we're trying to do there. Um, and uh, if you, you look on the Ashoka website, you'll find many examples. And, but uh, it's in our heads. In, in this country, less than most of the rest of the world. But people still say, although increased less and less now, Oh, you know, Brazilians don't give. That's a quaint Anglo-Saxon thing. Not true. If you look at this uh, religion, and you look at trade unions, and you look at the people who prepare for carnival every year, every poor neighborhood, ethnic groups, businesses, all these, every part of society that's a stable part of society, other than government that can force money out of you because they're the sovereign power. Uh, has to have a broad citizen base to be stable. And this is completely, this is a major strategic need for us. As we develop it, uh, it of course, it gets easier and easier. And there, there are four elements to that. Money, information, people, and businesses. And social businesses, I think, are going to be a very big part of it. But you know, a, a human rights group is different from a hospital. The, the pattern is going to be different. And um, uh, a large part of the creativity of our sector, as in business, is how do you 
how do you get resources in equaling resources out? There's got to be value given. Okay, down here, Greg. What is that? Do you think higher education in the United States part of the continuum problem or part of the solution? Boy, this is a really interesting question. Um, I, 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 I'm sad to see what's been happening to the universities. Uh, they have become ever more stovepiped, ever more finely stovepiped. You know, the, the dynamics of the journals and the academic meetings push in that direction. And that has made them less and less relevant to anyone else, less and less useful to students. You know, the, the era when people looked to the universities for ideas that might be useful, that they could understand, that you would talk to them in English, think economics is, I mean, I went to England to study economics in English because you don't do policy economics in math. You just try it with your friendly congressman someday and see how far you get. Um, well, this is a problem. And you know, I think, and I don't know how to solve this, but um, to the degree that you're beginning to see some people in the universities recognizing this problem. I talked to the master at Balliol College, Oxford, and uh, a few weeks ago while we were there, and I was thrilled to hear that his strategy for the 21st century, how will Balliol remain the best college at Oxford? His strategy is that their competitive advantage is that there are 400 students, there are faculty, both undergraduate and graduate, there are faculty in every field, and if we can make this a center of learning that focuses on the world in its whole entirety, that people learn from one another, then Balliol will have another century of intellectual leadership. Now, if other universities start doing that, they will get a huge response from students, from the policy world, from business, from the citizen sector. But this is, you know, it's the old problem, how do you get from system A to system B? It's clear, I think it's clear that system B would be a lot better, but we have to find the jujitsu point, and this is, this is an area where entrepreneurship, I think, is really needed, and hopefully Fuqua and Case is right in the lead on this. We're doing our best. Um, I noticed that we've actually reached the end of time, and I apologize because I know there's some hands that have been up for a while, but I want to thank Bill and give him a chance if there are any closing remarks you'd like to offer uh, to this audience this morning. Well, uh, just if I could come back to this everyone a change maker point uh, and put it slightly in historical context. As I mentioned, the agricultural revolution produced a small surplus and we created a very stable situation where a small elite has run everything ever since. And I think we've got a two-step jujitsu we've got to get through to everyone a change maker. Um, one is, we have to help all young people, not just elite young people, be powerful at 12, 14, 17. Be powerful means cause change, means practice. Get on the bicycle and keep falling off until you've really mastered the social, non-genetic, social skills of empathy, teamwork, leadership. 
you have to have all three. They're very complicated. If you don't have empathy, you're going to be part of the 25% of the world that is marginalized and it's your fault and you can't figure it out. It's the cruelest thing we do to people. It's the biggest waste on the planet. Without empathy, you can't do teamwork. Without teamwork, you can't do leadership. And the time to lead, to learn this and practice it is as a young person. So we have created something called Youth Venture, which we are moving out across the world to attack that. It's the civil rights, the women's movement for young people. If we can get 20% of this generation's young people to be change makers now as young people, when they are adults, they will be change makers. If you leave middle school and you started a tutoring service, your idea, you build a team, you ran it, and you see that tutoring service still going when you hit graduation, no one will ever tell you, convincingly anyway, that you're not a change maker. And you will have practiced empathy, teamwork, leadership. You're going to do it again and again. Our experience is that there are 25 kids involved in each of these deals. They're learning empathy, teamwork, and getting the idea they can lead. You get five or six in a school and you can tip the culture. Ultimately, we have to get to the point where everyone in society says this is crazy to treat 98%, 99% of the kids so that we kill their natural desire to be effective in society. Elite kids, it's very different. If, if you hit your sister, your mom says to you, how do you think your sister felt? Other kids are said, don't do that because I told you not to do that. Well, that's empathy versus rule-based system. It starts pretty early. Um, and elite schools recruit for leadership, which means those three things serially. You don't get into this school unless you have some, you've demonstrated those skills. Now, that's how the elite perpetuate themselves. And you have an oligopoly of initiative, which the faster the world changes, the more valuable that is, because every institution to survive needs change makers. And so there's a bidding war. That's why salaries for executives keeps going up and income differentials, not just in the US. Regardless of ideology, everywhere in the world, you can see this happening, because there's ever-increasing demand for a static supply. Guess what that does? Well, if we can get 20% of the kids now to be powerful, and everyone here can contribute to that, uh, then think what happens 15 years from now. You've got 20% of the young workforce who are change makers who don't want to not be change makers. And then you as a manager can actually recruit a workforce that's all change makers, and you can run away from the competition. And from that point, the rule of the elites is dead. That's the second jujitsu point. Once enough institutions in sector after sector, city after city, country after country, ethnic group after country, ethnic group get it, all the others are going to have to follow. And then the pressure is going to be on the school to stop being an 18th century information transfer thing that only measures math and English. It's like business only measuring uh, some you know, statistical income business. <coughs> Uh, are you developing kids that have mastered empathy in the second grade? If you haven't, you're failing as a school. We don't even talk about that. What proportion of the kids in the school are change makers when they graduate? Why isn't that more central than math, with all due respect to math? Bill, thank you so much for this morning, for your wisdom, and for your leadership in the field. Thank you very much. All right, thank you.